This is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to this Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Arba Otu. Dr. Otu is a 2022 graduate of the Ohio State University College of Optometry and comes into the profession with a master's in public health, which gives her a very unique perspective. Dr. Otu, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to share so many interesting stories. I think I've got a good place to start. You grew up as a child in Ghana, West Africa, with a mom who was a teacher, a dad who was a mechanical engineer. I'm curious what family values from your childhood you used to guide you to. Oh, the family values. Well, respect for people, right? That um, you should respect people regardless of their background. And you should, um, you know, value them as a person. I was brought up in a Christian home. So being a Christian, loving people, whether their values coincide with mine or not, that's not the priority. The priority there is to just love on them. So that was very paramount in my upbringing and just respecting people for the most part. Tell me more about your family and what it was like growing up there. Um, what was your household like? Did you have any grandparents you were close to? Um, so my grandparents lived in the village. So we lived more in the city and my grandparents were away and we only saw them a few times. So I did not meet both grandfathers. I met both grandmothers. Um, I did not spend a ton of that time with them, but every so often they would come to where we lived in the city and then, you know, they'll teach me how to cook and things of that nature. Um, so it's a little bit different. I didn't spend a lot of time with them, but I also lost them pretty early um, growing up. So I didn't meet both grandfathers, but I met both grandmothers. Yeah. You told me you have a love of cooking. Is that where it started? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so as a child, um, so I had, I had two brothers and growing up, that was a little bit of a struggle because I did not have a playmate, right? The boys played together and who was I going to play with, right? And they were not interested in the things that I was interested in. And if I tried to pay, play soccer with them, I kind of messed it up for them. You know, it took the fun oh. away from me because you have to use your foot. Because you were play. better than them. I wish. But, you know, back home, we called it football, right? So instead of using your foot to play the ball, I would be grabbing the ball. So hence, I did not make the game fun for them. So anyway, I did like playing house a lot, right? So I would grab things from the kitchen. I mean, grab without permission. Um, so <laughs> and then we had a backyard that had garden, like a garden that we had um you know, foodstuffs growing up there. So I would go to the garden and just like um, have things without permission, of course, and do my thing in the backyard. And uh, you know, so that's how I started as a kid. I didn't think anything of it. It was just part of being a girl child growing up in Ghana. You know, I didn't have much toys to play with. So that's what I did. Yeah. That sounds like a great way to have gotten started. Um, <laughs> 
you you have some really interesting family stories about eyes from your childhood. I want to start with the story about you being a malingerer so you can get glasses. Yes. yes. I mean, I got to tell you, I've had a lot of optometrists on Sandbox Stories. You're the first one that told me that you are a malingerer. Tell me what you did. <laughs> tell me what that was about. Right. So um, I remember multiple times I would go to the eye doctor because I was telling my mom that I'm having trouble seeing. And I would go to the doctor and I would clearly see the letters, but would say something completely different from what I was seeing. And I think the doctors were just taking advantage of this girl who did not know any better to make money off my parents. Does that mean? Like my mom, right? Because my mom believed in like, her eyes are not working well. We need to get her glasses so she can see, right? So I got prescribed glasses. And when I got prescribed glasses, I mean, at that point, I didn't know what was a strong power or a weak power. I just know I had glasses. And when I got glasses, I hated it. I disliked it because anytime I wore it, I had headaches, right? But then again, my mom, my dad all believe in, you know, you have to wear these glasses so your eyes will correct, right? So when I'm at home, I cannot study without wearing the glasses. So I had to be really like wear the glasses around my parents. But then when I went to school, the glasses would be somewhere and I would be somewhere. So I always got the strings with the glasses. Somehow that was fashionable growing up. So I would have the string and leave the glasses hanging over. And I would go about my day. And so sometimes I would have a lens fall out. It would break. I was just really careless with it, in part because I didn't care for it. And my mom would replace it every time I broke it. And so, yes. (laughs) I feel so for a long time. And then I went to high school. So high school was a boarding school. So I went away from home for the very first time. And then at that point, I got um, an eye infection, hemorrhagic conjunctivitis. So this is actually like seasonal. Every year we get it. And we call it Apollo. So I forget exactly why we had that, that name correlation, but it's called Apollo season and everybody gets it. And people usually try not to contract this infection or, you know, con- get conjunctivitis. But I welcomed it. Like someone has it, that person is going to be sitting by me that day. I'm going to sit by them that day. And then I would get conjunctivitis. And I also fancied because we used um, antibiotics, like the ointment antibiotics. That was the, the mode of treatment. And I think that's because maybe of the shelf life, it's, it's, the shelf life is longer, right? So I fancied putting ointment in my eyes. And so getting conjunctivitis and getting to do that was gold. <laughs> At the time, not now. <laughs> it's fascinating. Right? I mean, it is how some children behave. And it, it, I think we're going to talk a little bit in a second about how there was this real genuine interest in eye care. Before I go there, though, somewhere through your training at Ohio State, or, you know, you've, you've, you've fet, you met that first child who malingered, right? That started, you picked up on, they were calling every letter L a C or every M a W. Do, do you remember a time like that? Well, in Ohio State, the kids that I had were not old enough to do that. Okay. <laughs> so I didn't get a malinger, right? But, you know, we were always taught, like, the suppression ways to catch them. And so I feel like in this, like, the training that I got, even if I find a malinger, 
it's not going to be like scolding the child, right? It's more like talking to the parents. It's like, your child really wants glasses. Let's get him or her glasses without any power in it. And that would just solve that issue. You know what I mean? But back in the day, again, I'm not sure what glasses they gave me, but I felt like it was a real prescription. Hence, I got headaches. You know what I mean? Where they would have just bought me fake glasses and everything would have been great, you know? Yeah. My audience members, but I'm thinking they gave you a low minus prescription and you were told to wear it for near and whatever. <laughs> so now the family stories continue because your dad had surgery for a pterygium and your mom unintentionally put um, typewriter whiteout in her eye. And then you saw care being delivered to them. You, you talked about going to a teaching hospital that started to motivate you toward eye care. You, you wanted to put ointment in your own eyes, but you saw this. Tell us a little bit about the, how you saw that care being rendered to your family. Right. So um, my dad, so my dad, um, you know, back in Ghana, the word operation is just scary. Like, and I didn't know what operation he was going to have until the day after. And, you know, I think at the time my dad's pterygium was recurrent or maybe it was just both eyes. So he did one before the other. I just know that it was at least twice. Right. So dad had gone into the surgery and suddenly he comes home with a huge patch. It was just very serious surgery. Right. I think he was admitted at the hospital. I mean, you don't do that now. You just do surgery. You go home. Right. But it was a big deal back then. So anyway, I just recall um, going to the hospital with my mom the day after, and then I saw a lady, tiniest lady I have ever seen, that's how I remember it, right, wearing a black navy blue skirt suit walking towards her car. And then one of the nurses pointed to her and told me that that was the lady who did your dad's surgery. Right. And I feel like at that point it had occurred to me like, oh, wow, a lady surgeon in a society like this, you know, that was just like, wow, and amazing to me. And I feel like that got it started, that I am going to be a doctor. Do you know what I mean? And so um, so that was how my dad's thing started with the surgery with the pterygium and everything. At that time, I didn't really know what pterygium was. I just knew it was eye surgery. And then my mom, she always wore glasses. She always had a number of things with her eyes and she was a teacher. So, you know, her bag is usually full of supplies and supplies included having this big white out solution. So she had compartments for everything. So she had a compartment for her eye drops. And next to this compartment was a compartment for this big white out. So one time we were just at home and then we get a call that mom had to go to the doctor because she accidentally poured Tipex, which is white out in her eyes. So, you know, that thing dries out really, really fast, right? So she went to the doctor and of course they did what they had to do, scrape it off and then come home. So I feel like these little, little stories all contributed to like, every so often there's an eye issue, right? Every so often there's an eye issue. And then I went off to high school. So growing up, because of the company that my dad, dad worked for, I had good health care, like comparatively to what people had, right? So I did not really experience the realities of health care in Ghana until I went off to high school. And when I went off to high school, across my school was one of the largest teaching hospitals in Ghana. Again, this is like the largest teaching hospital in Ghana. I expect top-notch, you know, um, care. But again, it's public, so maybe I should I should lower my expectations. 
So anyway, I contract, I got contractivitis and then I went to, I asked for time off to go to the hospital to get, get my eyes checked. I believe I had to go about three times before I was able to get anybody to take a look at my eye because, you know, they only gave me so many hours to go out of school and then I would go and there was a long line. And frankly, a lot of people had more serious needs than I did. You know what I mean? And I just recall that at the time, doctors were on strike. Nurses or doctors, one of the healthcare professions were on strike, right? And so it was chaotic in the hospital. And so when people came to the hospital, you, one, have to go really early to be the first person in line. And even so, you being seen by a provider is not guaranteed, right? So I remember I would... I lived, my school was right across the school. I did not have to drive or travel. It was right there, but I always found myself in a very long line. And this was, you know, sitting in the waiting room, waiting to be taken care of was when I saw, you know, because I'm sitting there and I'm just watching what's going on. And a few nurses walking by, the waiting room is full of people, some people in wheelchairs, you know, in cloth, just I don't know how to paint that picture, but it wasn't a pretty picture to see, right? Mm -hmm. I recall seeing a lady um, live having a stroke and people were just passing by here. And I'm like, this is awful. You know what I mean? But anyway, that was when I feel like I saw the realities of healthcare where I had lived for a very long time, you know? So that planted in me the desire to be a doctor. I mean, when I started high school, all my classes were science because back home, you start towards your career in high school. It's not college that you start. So I was enrolled in science classes, but I feel like having gone to that hospital and experienced that, like seeing it with my own eyes, made it real for me. You know what I mean? And also in the where my school wa- was, every weekend we would hear dirges, like, you know, funeral songs, like, like people parade around and singing their just like every blessed weekend someone passed you know what I mean so again it was uncomfortable going away from home but at the same time I grew up there I, I got to know more about where I live because you could say that I was shielded growing back growing up at home you know what I mean um and so I think that did something for me every stage of life it feels like it does a little bit for you and pushes you further to the direction that you're supposed to go. Well, so then your family decides to pack up and move to the United States. Yeah. And <laughs> talk about a change. And you moved to the Chicago area and you told me that you worked at Target. Yes. But you also got involved yes. in a cancer research program at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Yes. And you were, were telling me that you were thinking of careers in eye care and cancer care. You've already told us about your motivation to be a doctor. Tell us a little bit about this experience you had in this research program and how the cancer research really positively changed your life again. Of course. So I, you know, went to community college when I first came in. We, my brothers and I understood that dad brought you to America. He will provide a place for you to stay, food to eat. The rest is up to you. So we all just worked and put ourselves through school. So I went to community college and then transferred to the four-year university, which is University of Illinois at Chicago. So um, one summer, a friend of mine told me about a summer research opportunities program, SRP for short. And so I decided to apply. And in my application, I had to express my interest. So my first interest was eye care and my second one was 
cancer care. I don't remember my third one. Um, basically, for that program, I had to find a mentor for myself, struggled to find a mentor to for that program, but the program um, matched me with a mentor. And this match was Dr. Charlotte Joslin, who is an optometrist and also an epidemiologist. So she balances, you know, these two fields in eye care and cancer care, specifically ovarian cancer um, and, you know, doing all public health and optometry and cancer care all together, that good mix. And that's a great mix because you have that variety, right? There is enough variety in eye care and there is enough variety in cancer care and you put it together and you have variety, you don't get bored, right? So anyway, I got matched with her, Somerset started, and then I just got engrossed in public health, right? That was when I got, you know, my crush course to public health. The hot topic at the time was all obesity and hypertension and diabetes, which are still hot topics now, but that's the bulk of things we were talking about, right? And so I got in there, I was like, yeah, I don't want to talk about all these other things. Can I still do my eye care and be public health? And of course, they welcomed it. And my mentor was optometrist. So why not, right? So I got to work with her all throughout that summer. Um, she actually had the data sets to the ERIT study. So she gave me the data set and I had to learn how to use a statistical software called SAS to analyze the data set to find out if there is like any inequalities in um, dietary intake and how that affected IOPs. So that was great. It was a hard summer. It was learning a whole level of statistics that was just beyond me. But I really enjoyed my time with Dr. Joslyn. She took time, very busy lady, but, you know, I really knocked on her door a number of times. And there were times she was like, I'm glad you knocked because, <laughs> like, if you don't ask, you will never get. And, you know, there were times that I felt like I was annoying, but it is what got me where I am. And it is what got me the help that I needed from her, you know. So anyway, summer passed. And then um, we stayed together, right? We stayed mentor and mentee. I applied for um, research opportunities at school. She maintained my as my mentor and still mentor-mentee relationship up, up, up until now. Um, so summer ended, I think maybe a year later, I graduated, how do you call it, um, with my BS in chemistry from UIC. And so now what are the next steps, right? So. I really, at the time, wanted to do ophthalmology because I was like, okay, I want to do global health work. I want to do public health work, right? But um, optometry has a lot of limitations, especially where I come from. All the doctors that I have encountered with back home were ophthalmology. The scope of practice is different. And I also do not, do not want the limitations like, oh, you can't do this. Oh, you can't do this. I want to be the one to say that I'm not comfortable doing this, so I will not do it. So with all this mindset, I really wholeheartedly wanted ophthalmology, right? And Dr. Jaslain paved the way for me, right? She knew ophthalmologists. She will, con she will connect them with me. I will go shadow them. You know, she's, she's a great mentor. So all that happened, I applied for medical school because, schools in Illinois because, again, I didn't want to go out of Illinois. So I applied to maybe four or five medical schools in um Illinois land area. And then I applied to optometry school. And so, you know, there was a whole lot of deliberation going on there, right? I did not get into any medical schools, got accepted into optometry school. And now I had to make a decision. Um, I re am I really ready to give up what I have worked so long for, for, for optometry, right? And 
at the time I was like, okay, no, we are going to give it another shot. Right. And I did not make this decision independently. I talked it over with people. I got advice and say, okay, you apply just once. Why are we giving up when you apply just once? You've done all these things. It is phenomenal. Don't just give up. Right. So I elected to do uh, my public health degree and then strengthen my application and then reapply. So I did not accept the offer to go to optometry school. So I did my public health degree. Again, I loved it. I still did eye care when everybody was doing, you know, cancer, obesity, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, it's still going to be eye care. So that's what happened. And so I got, during the time, I met a lady who was doing her PhD it was public health, but she was also working under Dr. Jocelyn. And then she had gone to Ghana to do Unite for Sight. So she told me about Unite for Sight and she raved about it beautifully. I was like, I'm doing Unite for Sight. Anyway, I got to do Unite for Sight and then I got to go to Ghana now as an outsider coming in. You know what I mean? So I got to Ghana to do two months with Unite for Sight and was able to implement an epidemiology study you know, it was for my capstone project for my MPH. So it was pretty cool, right? I was able to go home with a different outlook after so many years. And so when I went there, um, Unite for Society in Ghana, I'm sure things have changed right now. But at the time, they were working with four main ophthalmologists. And these ophthalmologists are spread out across the country. So because I was doing like four, um, you know, eight weeks with them, I had enough time to spend with each ophthalmology. So that means that I was able to move across different um, communities and regions in the country that I did not even know about because I only lived in one tiny part, right? So again, that was very um, enlightening to me, right? Because I got to know my country a little bit more. And it's just sad that you grow up somewhere and you don't know anything and you had to come in differently to see that. But anyway, that was very great because I was able to do, again, eye care, I was able to do public health. I was able to implement what I was learning in school. But at the same time, again, I was able to see the magnitude of the need in my home country, right? And it was saddening. And again, it further pushed me, this is what I want to do kind of thing. Um, yeah, so did Unite for Sight two months and we would go do screenings in different communities. And, you know, I always say that back home, we practiced public health without intending to. It's not like formal public health, right? Because how are you going to communicate to people who do not all speak English? right? Yes, right now I'm pretty sure a lot of people speak English because we are taught English in school, but there are some people who are not educated and there are so many different languages and dialects and I only speak one in two different forms. Do you get what I'm trying to say? So how do you communicate to a lot of people who don't speak the same language? And every region, yes, we are all in Ghana, but every culture or every tribe has a different culture. Like foods are different. So it is one country, but there's a lot of differences in a lot of languages, right? So again, growing up there or going back there, I see that we are doing public health. And one of the ways to do public health and educate people was acting and play. So let's say that you're trying to educate people about cholera and things of that nature. You would have place and show people how this waterborne disease and things of that nature. So there was a lot of, again, public health that came to my realization later. And so it was pretty cool to see, you know, we have malaria 
and mosquitoes, right? So you have like all these advertisements on TV with all these mosquito nets and showing how mosquito nets can kill mosquito. Again, that's public health. It's just on TV. You know what I'm trying to say? So it was cool to see that I have been in public health all this while, but again, I did not know it, right? Um, so that was great. You know, I came back, was able to finish my project with my MPH. Uh, it was very real, well received at the school. You know, I was able to submit different abstracts for that, for the academy, for the APHA. It was just great. Um, so then I came back and then I finished my MPH and now it was time to reapply. It was time to figure out my next steps again, right? So this time I broadened my horizon a little bit, right? Went out of Illinois, maybe added, how do you call it, Indiana, you know, neighboring states, because again, I didn't want to go too far from my family. And then I got a job at the UIC Cancer Center. Uh, again, so something that I did not say in my story with my match with Dr. Mentor, Dr. Jocelyn, which I feel like is the perfect match because her interest matches mine. And given how much work I had put in to find a mentor and did not find one, but they found me one that just, you know, merged so perfectly that we have such a great relationship and she has done so much for me where mentorship is concerned. You know what I mean? So anyway, I got a job at the cancer center. Um, now I was doing clinical, it was a clinical trials study office, right? So I was doing clinical trials and things of that nature. And now I was kind of like managing or looking at Dr. Jocelyn's studies as it came through the cancer center, right? So I was still in constant communication with Dr. Jocelyn. And at this point, I was getting uh, replies from medical schools and they were all like rejections, rejections. And I think I was becoming numb to it and kind of settling with the idea that I will not become an eye doctor. So Prevent Blindness, which is, you know, an organization that exists in so many different states, Prevent Blindness headquarters in Chicago had sent out an email about looking for students who need projects for capstones, right? So I was like, well, I already graduated. I don't need a project, but I do want to be involved in eye care if I'm not going to go back to school and become an eye doctor. So I got involved with Prevent Blindness, did a lot of community health things where, you know, in that area. So anyway, I was at work one day going through my emails and then I got an email from Dr. Jocelyn and she was like, I don't remember the exact words, but as I said, she sermoned me to her office and I get to her office and says, uh, why is it eight months or however months it was and you're still at the cancer center? Like what happened to becoming an eye doctor? What happened to going to school and becoming an eye doctor? Ever since I've known you, that's all you have wanted. Like what is going on? And I was like, well, if I had, and you know, I, I've changed a lot in recent times in terms of crying. I cry a lot. <laughs> so I just started bowing and I was like, if I had good news, you would be one of the first people I would tell. The fact that I haven't said anything means I don't have any good news. You know what I mean? And then she tells me to apply to Ohio State. And so I was like, why would I do that? There's a school in my backyard and you're telling me to go across states, skip Indiana and go to Ohio where I know nobody, right? So she did not get through to me, right? And I think at the time, again, I was kind of settling with the idea that I would not become an eye doctor. So I went to my office, did not give her any satisfying answers and went about on my duties. And then that evening I got a message from her husband, <laughs> Dr. Yulansky. 
So Dr. Yelansky is one of the ophthalmologists that I shadowed when I very started, right? And when I started, whenever they would have like ophthalmology residents come in, they have those two weeks of a crash course of ophthalmology. And I would be sitting in those classes, like, because I had Dr. Jocelyn, like, I got a lot of learning exposure with these people, right? So I really knew Dr. Elansky. So I got a text message from him and he was like, you need to come see me tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I didn't ask him, why do I need to come see you tomorrow? I put two and two together, right? And so I think I had a doctor's appointment that day. So I was like, okay, I will come after this, right? And my job at the time was, it was flexible that, you know, all I had to do was get my work done. Do you get what I mean? So if I needed five hours to get my work done, yes, I have three hours to do other things, right? So I had come back from my doctor's appointment and then we had decided that we would meet at the Illinois INA infirmary. So Dr. Yulansky used to work for the Jesse Brown VA, which is right across from UIC. So every Friday he would come to UIC, you know, he's retina, um, he would always be giving injections to AMD patients and things of that nature. So he took time off and then we went to this huge conference room with this huge table. And then he sits at the head of the table, I sit by him, and he just bombards me with a lot of personal questions. And I was like, very, very uncomfortable, right? But I can't lie to this man. He's sitting right across from me and he's not being nice about it. How old are you? When are you getting married? When are you having kids? I'm like, I don't know. I don't have answers. I don't know how it fits in the life that I want. I just know that this is all I want, right? So again, I didn't give him any satisfying answers. And then he tells me to apply to optometry school. And so at this point, I was like, fine, I will apply. I mean, I, I didn't have that attitude, but in my head, that's what it was, right? I will apply to Ohio State optometry school. And if I get accepted, I'm not going. So that's what I said. And he was like, we don't care. All we want is for you to apply. So this was like February. It was a leap year. It was like end of February, beginning of March. And this is when applications are due, right? So I went home, quickly changed all my, um, you know, essays to fit optometry, right? And it wasn't hard to do. It fit, it fit optometry. I just had to change the name, right? So I submitted my application. Lo and behold, I got an invitation to go for um, an interview. A friend of mine was really nice to drive me all the way to Ohio, had that interview, a very emotional interview, I might say. Um, <laughs> um, but it was great. You know, I was honest in my interview, very transparent, you know, told me, asked me, why are you here? And just, Again, I bawled, I cried, and I just laid it all down to them, right? But it was a very good, honest interview. I did not lie to them. It was great. Nothing. It was just great. So I got out and then drove back to Illinois. And then a few days later, maybe in the next week, I got an email saying that, no, I think it was a call saying that you got accepted. And it was really hard because, you know, a lot of people wait on these calls and that's just like screaming on the other end of the line, like, oh my God, it got accepted, right? But I could not rejoice that way because I had a plan to not go, right? And the reason why I had a plan to not go was to figure out, is this really what I want to do? And if this is really what I want to do, um, and also at the time I was a little bit bitter because years prior I had been accepted to optometry school and I did not take it only to come years later to go to the same profession that I would almost have been done 
So that was very, you know, I had to, I had to settle with that. Right. So it's a lot of me, me wanting to do things my way. And then Ohio State, so I was a chemistry major, so I did not take a lot of biology. And Ohio State had like requirements for physiology or something of that nature that I had not satisfied. So which means that I had to um, satisfy that prerequisite before I could enroll that fall. So because I was working for an academic institution, if I took it either the fall or the spring, they would pay for it. But if I was going to go to school in the fall, then I have to take it in the summer. And that has to come out of my pocket. So aside the many reasons why I did not want to go that year included, can I save some money so that the school will pay for, I mean, I've paid a lot of student loans to the school. Can the school give me something back, right? So I wrote the best deferment letter I know how and submitted it. was very scared, but I submitted it. And uh, I heard back, and I don't remember quite remember the words, but basically either you come now or forget it, right? <laughs> Um, and at that point, there was no decision to make. Like, why would someone give me such an opportunity and I would not take it? Right. So and that was at the first school you were accepted to, um, not at Ohio State. Yes, it wasn't at Ohio State. Right. It was not at Ohio State. Um, and you know, I have to say my mentor went to Ohio State, right? Um, so I got a, I, I accepted the offer and then enrolled online for a physiology class painfully paid for it and did that class during the summer and then fall came and packed all my bags and went to Ohio for school (laughs) um but yeah you know and in hindsight I moved to the country in 2007 and I took all my classes you know the chemistry the biology the physics all the doctor classes at the beginning because I was bent on doing that right and this was around end of 2007. School, it was 2018 because school started in 2018. So again, in hindsight, right, that would have been 10 years. Like, had I not taken that opportunity, <laughs> the next year would have been 11 years and my classes would have expired. At that point, I would neither be a, an ophthalmologist or an optometrist because there was no way I was going to go back to school and do all those purposes all over again. You know, I mean, I have a lot of dedication and a lot of passion for eye care, but I don't know if I would have done that. So I am grateful for Dr. Joslyn and Dr. Yulansky for them stepping in when they stepped in. I did not know any better. And it's like, I almost always had a plan, right? And it almost always did not go my way. And it was very emotionally draining, very annoying, very upsetting because you put your heart and a lot of energy in what you want and you reap nothing out of it. So it was very, you know, it, again, it had, I had gotten to the point where I would be fine laughing, having a good time. And someone would ask me one question about school and everything changes. Like that's how... Um, sensitive that topic was for me so anytime I had to talk about my struggles I could not do it with a dry face you know what I mean um so anyway I am just going from how everything started meeting Dr. Jocelyn I worked with her for so long I wrote my first abstract under her mentorship my first presentation under her mentorship my first publication under her mentorship I cannot speak enough about Dr. Jocelyn 
And then she does all this for me and ending me, getting me to Ohio State, right? So I remember one time, and anytime I would come back home, I would go visit her, right? And sometimes I don't even text her or email her that I'm coming because she's busy in clinic. If I want to see her, I have to see her between patients. Like, hey, hello, hi, let's talk a little bit. You know what I mean? But I'm just grateful for her and very amazed and in our how ev- in all like how everything has happened. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, you told me something. I think it came from your family that there was this sort of phrase that if it doesn't happen my way, it's okay. And and you got through all of that and it wasn't your way, but boy, it ended up being your way, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you know, like right now, I'm just very happy. Like people ask me, so like, how is residency? How is this? How is this? I'm like, I don't remember the last time I had nothing to complain about, right? <laughs> That's me now. Like anything I have to complain about is part of what I chose. Do you get what I'm trying to say? And it's just I am utterly grateful and realizing that yes, it's not gonna happen my way. But again, however it happened was much better than I planned it. You know what I'm trying to say? Uh-huh. And, and and you say that everything is good. And, and part of the reason we connected was that I saw on LinkedIn that you graduated in May of 2022 mm-hmm. and you were immediately recognized as the American Optometric Student Association's Optometry Student of the Year. Congratulations on that. I, I'm curious how you ended up becoming eligible for it because I know that you got a little bored through school and <laughs> and yet you were awarded. How did that come to be? Yeah. So, um, I have to start from somewhere, which was 2020, okay? So back in 2020, Prevent Blindness, which is the organization headquarters in Chicago and exists in so many different states, put a prompt out there asking people, students, people in eye care to talk about the future outlook of vision and eye health and what are we going to do to address it? And I saw this as a very, it had my interest, right? It's public health and it's eye care. So I took time off and I wrote this essay that I had a blast writing and then I won that award. So after that award, you know, national presentation or everything that happened within that conference that Prevent Blindness had, at the end of it, I felt a bit empty, right? Like, what is the point of suggesting an idea if it's not going to be implemented, right? And I felt like it was up to me to implement that. So I, str- I started looking for resources. You know, I talked to a number of my professors, Dr. Freeze, Dr. Mudi, and they all, anybody I talked to just poured into me, right? Like they, I feel like, you know, they added gasoline to my fire. Like I'm already excited about something and I tell somebody and they don't, they do not shut it down. It's just like encourage it and lead me to resources and things of that nature, right? So I started looking for resources and any resource I came across was asking me, for a 501c status, which is like a nonprofit status. And so that I, I assume that so that they could file taxes at the end of the year. So it was really a stumbling block. Everything was asking me for a 501c status. So I was like, okay, if that's what you want, you're going to get a 501c status. And so this was during the time where we were getting all our stimulus checks from the government and everything. So that's where my stimulus check went. But I, I had help in terms of advice, right? So I contacted Dr. Freeze because he's like um, like a private practice person at school. He teaches us a lot of business in relation to optometry. So I, I needed his insights. And then he connected me with uh, Keith Cairns, right? 
um, of the Ohio Optometry Association. And he turned out to be a lawyer, gave me great advice on how to proceed, you know, so that's how it all started. So, you know, I have friends whom when I get excited, I spill things I'm doing too, right? So it's not like (laughs) everything I was doing was in secret. There were people who knew what I was doing and what I was excited about because I spent time with them and we talked and things of this nature. So, um, and sometimes I felt like I was crazy. Like, why are people listening to me? And like, it was just crazy. But that's the beauty of being a dreamer. Like you dream it, you get excited, you make it happen kind of thing, you know? And it gets frustrating when, you dream it, but you don't know how to make it happen. You know? So anyway, I had well, you had the right you had the right resources. You the thing is, you found the right resources. Certainly, certainly. So one of my classmates, Jaime Antonio, um, very involved in school. He's basically everywhere. There's so many times that I go somewhere and someone hears someone from Ohio State and asks me, "Do you know Jaime Antonio?" I'm like, "Who doesn't know Jaime Antonio?" Anyway. Jaime Antonio, one time, out of the blue, asked me, so he's a close friend of mine. You know, we did Fellowship of Christian Optometry together. We went to Jamaica together. I spent a lot of time with Jaime through the struggles of optometry school. You know what I mean? I'm like, Jaime needs to pick me up when I fall down kind of thing, right? So anyway, he asked me for my resume one time, and I did not think twice of it. I thought he needed a template to do his resume. (laughs) He was going to... He was going to copy. No, 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 no. Again, I didn't think anything of it. I thought he just, and, you know, I trust him. Like, you can have a resume. Who cares, right? So I gave my resume to him. And then later, I find out that he recruited two doctors from school, you know, two faculty from school, and then a good friend of ours, Erlene, and then they all wrote recommendation letters. So Jaime, how do you call it? He uh, recommended, is a recommend, nominated. Nominated, and then he had all these supporting doctors support him. And again, these are all doctors that everything that I'm doing in the world of public health, or all my thoughts, you know, I just Zoom call them and we chat about it. Like, um, yeah, so that was great. And I, That's you know, great. these are the friends that you need in your corner. I had no idea what was going on. Do you get what I'm trying to say? And then later I find out that that's how it happened. Because, again, when I started this, I'm not thinking about what fame is going to get me or what award it's going to get me. I'm thinking, this is what I want to do, and this is what makes me happy, and I want to do global health work, but I'm here in America. How can I do it? I suggested something. How can I implement it? You know what I mean? So he was the one who nominated, and then later I found out, and I was like... Like, you know, very, very surprised because he had asked me for one of the doctor's number. And again, I did not think twice. This is Dr. Davis. I did not think twice. I thought he was calling her to congratulate her on Black History Month or whatever it was. Not knowing he was trying to, like, get her to write a recommendation letter. You know, he reached out to Dr. Dean Van Asdale, who is like the public health person at school. And I had, you know, because of public health, we talk a lot, express interest and things that we could be doing in the profession, things of that nature. And then, you know, he was my advisor for the Health Equity Scholars Program at school, which is also one of the resources that I found to be able to propel the nonprofit forward. So that is how I got nominated for the um, Students of the Year Award, right? I had no idea, but I was very honored and 
again amazed and it's just like i have friends you know what i mean like they the, the, sound surprised but no, you're, you're well deserving surprised, but like you know there are levels of friendship right and it's like i mean the word friend in the very raw way like the word in itself friend you know what i mean where they mention your name in places that you are not and just I don't know how um, I don't have words. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. I want to I want to I want to tie your public health expertise to eye care because you've referenced it a couple times now, and I think optometry should be thinking about it more. The intersection of its its eye care delivery and public health. You've talked about health literacy. I heard you say that. What does that mean to deliver a public health minded approach in eye care? Maybe it's health literacy. Maybe it's understanding you know, the shortcomings of, of a variety of, of segments of our public to eye care. Give us some advice. Yes. So I think that, you know, public health is broad and where optometry can play a role can easily get overwhelming. It gets overwhelming for me, right? Because I feel like, you know, when I was in school, we talked a lot about food deserts, which has a lot of relation to diabetes, hypertension, obesity. So public health is trying to address things like food deserts. And that is important to me as a doctor, as an eye care provider, because diabetes has manifestations in the eyes. And so like as eye doctors, you know, even now that I'm a how do you call it, resident, or like, you know, in the training, we quickly, like if you have a patient who has diabetic retinopathy, we quickly tell them, oh, um, maintain your blood sugar, do this, see a PCP, and then we stop there. Primary care provider, but we are primary eye care provider. Like, you tell them to go see your PCP, their primary care provider, but you are a primary care provider. So, like, do you know what I'm trying to say? We should be doing, I'm not saying that we should be doing the work of the PCP, but we should not just be handing it off, right? And so the food deserts, what, what, you know, th these are things that have run through my head a number of times, right? We talk about diabetes, and I'm going to use diabetes as the example. And it's like there are so many social, we call it social determinants of health, right, that affects people and that dictates health outcomes. In our world, eye health outcomes. And food deserts is one of them. So let's say the person goes to their PCP and the PCP is like, oh, eat this, eat healthy, eat healthy, do this. What about we think about where the person lives? Do they have access to grocery stores that sell the green, the green vegetables and fruits you're telling them to eat, right? The community that they live in, do they have the green space so that this person can exercise? Is it a safe neighborhood, right? And so this is where it could get overwhelming because where does our role stop, right? Mm -hmm. Because everything, it's, it, it is very public health heavy. Right. So how do we juggle both? So I guess like the advice could be that we should know our community where we live. Unless somebody is traveling miles and miles away to come see you, they most likely live in your community. So if you know your community and you know the resources available, hence the grocery stores, the gym, the green space, again, the different things that could address the social determinants that, you know, there are some things that are modifiable. There's some things that you can address and there's some things that you cannot, right? So if you live in a place and you know the community really well, 
you can easily give this patients those resources. And then them seeing their PCP as a supplement. And hopefully that PCP also knows their community well. And then it's just a lot of resources for those patients so that they are not just left with go and exercise, go and eat healthy, go and do this. Because the, the managing diabetes is not just about taking the metformin, right? There is a lot of, you know, where they live, the, the family members they have, who is helping them out, accessing the doctor, you know, measuring the blood pressure. There are so many different things. So just being conscious of the different things that affect someone's health and doing more, a little bit more than just go to your PCP. Does it cross a line to ask them about their financial ability to buy good food for their health? I mean, where is that line? You said, you said it gets very broad quickly. Is that an okay thing to talk about? I think it depends, right? If you have a patient where you can establish, how do you call it, trust with them quickly, then they'll be comfortable to tell you these things. But, you know, we also learn how you should not assume that someone cannot afford something. Whether or not they can afford it does not dictate you telling them the resources available to them. You get what I'm trying to say? You may not yeah. even need to know their financial status. Give it to them, and then they decide the next step. And then if you give it to them and they cannot afford it, then maybe they will tell you. Do you get what I'm trying to say? So the financial is great, but maybe it's none of our business. You should just tell them the resources available to them. Fair. And then Fair. if they tell you because you have established a good rapport and trust with them, then that's great. That's beautiful, you know? That's very good advice. I want to give you the last word. Um, you're at the beginning of your career. I think my audience should be reminded that you're in your residency after having graduated less than a half year ago. What do you hope to see happen in the first decade of your career within optometry? <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, I feel like I am public health, global health optometry. And with being in school and seeing how some classmates um, – do things or talk about things. I feel like a lot of people, for lack of better words, are very narrow, right? Like our profession is huge. And I feel like, I mean, it's small, but it's huge in the sense that what we are dealing with or what we are trying to address has a huge significance. And I feel like a lot of people may realize that in their little circle, and maybe I see it differently because I'm in the public health and the global health world. Again, I went to Ghana and I saw it from a different angle. And I tried to be involved with the International Agency of Prevent Blindness. And I'm always seeing news from here, from the United Nations, trying to use eye care to address, um, you know, sustainable developmental goals. Like we cannot achieve eliminating poverty without addressing eye care in different countries. So again, it could get overwhelming. Like, you are in your little space. There's a problem in your little, little space. How do I address a global problem? But the thing is that it's the you addressing the little, little local things gets a global impact. Do you get what I'm trying to say? So I feel like people, I would, I'm biased, like a lot of people should do more than just their little circle. Do you get what I mean? Because the huge, the, 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 how do you call it? The need is very huge. And it gets overwhelming. It, th that's how huge it is. Do you get what I mean? But there are a whole host of people out there 
with the same agenda. Do you get what I mean? And, you know, like last, I think it was 2020, I got the opportunity to be um, IAPB's um, eye health hero, okay? So this eye health hero gave me the opportunity to sit in conversations with eye care providers, people in eye care, not just eye care providers, across different nations. Meetings or workshops were 4 a.m. American time, whether I was in Chicago or Ohio or Indiana. I just had to go to bed early and wake up early to be on these conversations. But to go on a call and see people from all over the world with the same interest and the same admissions for eye health, it's just like the conversations keep going and going and going. And just like, you know, like, again, you are already, your fire is already ablaze and people keep pouring petrol or gasoline into it. You know what I mean? And it gets really, really exciting. You know what I mean? So just realizing that what we are doing is no small thing. It is huge. And so if in our little circle, you do your due diligence and you do what you have to do, you are contributing to a greater problem because the problem exists here in America. And if it exists in America, it exists everywhere else, right? So just people realizing that it's not just being an eye doctor. There's a huge thing. And there is a whole agenda, you know, to prioritize vision and eye health in so many different countries so that we can combat preventable blindness. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Hopefully that answers your question. I can't wait to see what the impact is of your participation in our profession. Um, I'm very excited to see the arc uh, and the information you bring to us uh, as you get even more deeply involved in delivering eye care. I should ask, uh, you talked about being a cook. You're obviously an incredible conversationalist. You talked about uh, in something that we did before this meeting that you love getting together with friends and eating ice cream. What's your favorite flavor? <laughs> I, like, I like the ones with coconut shavings. Coconut shavings. <laughs> Get out on the edge of coconut ice cream. That's great. Yes. I love it. Dr. Arba Atu, thank you for sharing your perspectives with the audience. It's been wonderful to have you on Sandbox Stories. Thanks for being my guest. Okay. Thank you. And to the audience, thanks for attending and giving Dr. Atu your full attention. She's going to do great things in optometry. And until my next Sandbox Story, be great at all.